Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I'm your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show. A whopper today. It's a whopper of a, a whopper. show. whopper. Burger King trademark. We have the one and only <laughs> Dr. Steve Pipe, uh, the former, so gotta say former now, chair of NHF's Medical and Scientific Advisory Council, better known as MASAC, one of the renowned hematologists and researchers in our community, and he specifically joined Amy and I to talk about Hemogenics, the new hemophilia B gene therapy medication recently approved by the FDA for people with hemophilia B 18 years and older. Dr. Pipe joined us to talk to us about all things hemogenics, gene therapy for hemophilia mm-hmm. B. I mean, Amy, we kind of ran a gamut with Dr. Pipe. Yes, he was the primary investigator of uh, the trial there at the University of Michigan. And so he is the perfect person to talk about it and will be the perfect person, I think, to answer some questions for y'all. I think even uh, he may folks should listen to this interview because it was... It was great. It was very comprehensive. Uh, we talk about like what's the process if you're interested, which I think is a little bit still nebulous. So anyway, great. You'll hear Amy and I respond to the interview in real time uh, at the end, just after the discussion with Dr. Pipe. You'll hear my and Amy's thoughts on that. We would have had a Let's Talk segment following that interview, but because it's a bit of an extended interview, we decided to break the Let's Talk segment out. And Amy, correct me if I'm wrong, that segment is going to run the subsequent Friday on February the 3rd. Correct. And that will kick off as well, February, which is Black History Month. And for Black History Month, we are doing a, a small series, I guess, and James Maple, correspondent James Maple, specifically is doing a small series of interviews with members of the bleeding and rare disorders community to talk a bit about Black History Month in the context of bleeding disorders. So the first in that series is going to be paired with that Let's Talk episode on the third. After Dr. Pipe's interview, you'll hear my and Amy summarize and do a quick outro, and that'll be all for today's episode. So before we get into the interview, Amy, is there anything else that we need to mention? I don't think so. I could think of one thing. Okay, me too. Listeners, <laughs> I want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Incredible. Me too, as well. I also. Okay, great. And Takeda's dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, even if you don't need it, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would like to raise my root beer and say <laughs> thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. Which, listeners, just so you know, Patrick was professional. When I thought we had something more to say, I was going to mention Patrick's root beer. I am also eating nerds. <laughs> Do you guys remember that from your childhood? My That's what I'm eating. My mouth waters when I hear that shit. Yes. Oh, I don't like that that happens, actually. Grape and strawberry, everybody. All right, we're talking about root beer and nerds. That's my fault. I brought up the root beer. (laughs) Um, But let's get into the good stuff. So here it is. Dr. Pipe on hemogenics, gene therapy, hemophilia B. Amy and I will be back on the other side. 
Hey, listeners, Amy and I are now joined by Dr. Stephen Pipe. You've heard him before here on Bloodstream. Dr. Pipe, welcome back, and thanks for joining us here today. Happy to be here. So there's plenty we could talk about, we may talk about. We have some questions we've prepared, but we may go off. Uh, what's your line, Amy? What do you like to say? Off the what? Uh, going rogue. Going rogue. <laughs> I should know that by now. So we may go rogue, but we'll we'll start with the reason that we're here, which is that uh, we have the first gene therapeutic for people with severe, with hemophilia B called Hemgenics. It is now FDA approved and available. So let's start with a really broad question, Dr. Pipe. What do patients in particular need to know about hemogenics? Well, at a, at a very basic uh, concept, um, the problem with hemophilia B is a mutation uh, in just a single clotting factor protein, factor nine, and patients can't make uh, factor nine. Uh, in the severest form, uh, patients have no detectable factor nine in the bloodstream. And uh, we've been replacing that missing protein with factor replacement for the last 50 plus years uh, with factor concentrates. Um, that's a pretty tall order for most patients. It, it requires IV access. Um, even though we've had some innovations to extend the half-life of the factor nine protein over these years, I would say at, at best what we can offer patients is a once-weekly IV infusion in order to provide adequate prophylaxis uh, to prevent breakthrough bleeding. Now, when I mm -hmm. say adequate, meaning up until now, there really hasn't been anything better than factor nine replacement. Uh, so how good has factor nine replacement been? Well. Uh, we know that patients still have breakthrough bleeds. They still have breakthrough bleeds into joints. Um, we know they still miss school. We, we know they still miss work. Uh, we know that uh, chronic uh, joint debility is still a feature of patients who've been on prophylaxis their whole lives. We know a, a significant proportion of patients uh, report uh, chronic pain on a daily basis. So when mm -hmm. we say factor nine replacement is, is adequate, um, that's because up until now, there really hasn't been anything to offer better. Mm. So this is a paradigm shift. Instead of having to replace the protein over and over and over again, we're going to take a different approach here, and we're going to have the patient's own liver be the factory that makes the factor nine. And so uh, we've had the gene, we've cloned the gene for factor nine, you know, decades ago. That's how we've been making all these recombinant clotting factors from that gene. But that's sitting in a, in a factory somewhere in a big bioreactor making protein. Why don't we get the gene into the liver and have the patient's own liver make the factor nine for them? Um, huh. This in concept could be a single treatment event. And then once the gene is there, the normal uh, protein machinery of the cell, of the liver, will be able to make the, the protein in perpetuity. So the, the order, uh, the, the challenge was, how do we get that gene into the liver efficiently and mm -hmm. durably so that from a single treatment event, we can expect their liver to make factor nine, you know, for good from that point forward. So we've spent really the last 30 years looking at all different options of how to deliver factor nine to the liver. And the, the process or the procedure, if you like, that seems to have had the best uh, risk benefit profile for the hemophilic community is using um, these non-pathogenic viruses called adeno-associated virus. Now, we're not actually using the whole virus, the active virus, even though it's a virus and we're kind of nervous about viruses these days, right? 
Right. But this is this is a non-pathogenic virus, which means it, it doesn't cause any disease in humans. Plus, mm. we aren't we aren't leaving the viral genes um, within this vector. We're stripping those out, and it's replaced with what we call the transgene, which is just the factor nine clone gene, and then a, a few extra elements so that uh, it can remain stably inside the cell once it's delivered. And also, so it only gets expressed in the liver. So we include what are called genetic elements, promoter uh, elements, so that once it gets into the cell, only the liver cell can read the code and make the protein. Hmm. So why do we use these AAV viruses? Well, because they have a, a particular knack to home to the, to the liver, and it gets taken up into the liver cell. And I like to use this analogy of, we just went through Christmas, right? So I, I like to use this analogy of uh, getting all your Amazon deliveries at Christmas time, okay? So what you're ordering here is the factor nine gene. So that gets packaged into the Amazon box. That's the AAV vector, okay? okay. And it gets delivered into the bloodstream with a single infusion over about one to three hours. It's tolerated generally very well. And then uh, your, your uh, liver cell has the address for where the Amazon box needs to go. And so that vector goes straight to the liver cell. Uh, it specifically gets recognized by receptors at the cell surface. It gets taken up inside the cell. And then what do we do when we get our Amazon boxes? We open them up. And that's exactly what happens. It goes straight to the nucleus. It unboxes. The transgene gets delivered into the nucleus of the cell. That's where the machinery is um, to read the code. And then uh, your body basically recycles the box. And so it breaks down all the protein elements of that virus vector coat, and it chops it all up into little pieces, and it gets it out of the cell. What remains behind is just that transgene, the factor nine, and those promoter elements. And... Uh, What's an important feature here of this platform of therapy is your genetic machinery and protein machinery within the cell can read this code and make factor nine without integrating into the DNA. So we're Why not- Why is that important? I, I think it's important for, for two reasons. Um, the first thing is we, we do have vir viral vectors that have been used for gene therapy and other diseases where the only way it will function is if the gene gets delivered and integrates into the patient's um, own genome, into their chromosomes. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some risk associated with that depending on what type of viral vectors are used. Some older vectors um, had a predilection that the gene may insert in areas which could be... Um, have some adverse consequences within the cell. It might change mm. how other types of genes get turned on or get turned off. Mm. And there is some risk, not zero, of actually triggering tumors. And so the okay. goal for uh, gene therapy for hemophilia was to use a, uh, a type of vector which didn't have to integrate into the DNA. And mm. so that's why the AAV vectors were formed. Once this transgene ends up inside the nucleus, it forms a little circular uh, mini chromosome, if you like. Um, they're called episomes. And the vast majority of the DNA elements stays inside the cell separate from the DNA. Now, to be, to be fair, we know that some components of the transgene do end up integrating into various uh, 
portions of the genome. Hmm. The good thing about AV is it doesn't have a predilection to high-risk sites. It tends to integrate hmm. into what are called the active parts of the, of the chromosome, which means this is DNA that your cell is normally hmm. supposed to be reading. Okay. It doesn't seem to be integrating into areas that cause or activate genes which have been a problem. Hmm. So this is why this platform was brought forward to the community, because we felt it had the best risk-benefit um, uh, ratio. Now, uh, once that episome gets in there, as long as that cell stays active and survives, for the duration of the life of that cell, that episome should continue to express the gene. And this is why we think with this single treatment event, we can get long-lasting expression of factor IX in the liver cell. We've piloted this before extensively in animal models, mouse models with hemophilia, the dog models with hemophilia, I think have been uh, most encouraging. These dogs were treated when they were puppies, if you like. Mm -hmm. Many of them uh, were uh, followed all the way till old age. Um, you know, some of these dogs uh, live 12 to 15 years. They expressed factor nine with these exact same vectors all the way out uh, throughout their whole lifespan. You may remember that some of the early clinical work in he patients with hemophilia B was reported around uh, 2011 through 2014. Well, fast forward, those gentlemen now have been post-heme B gene therapy with AV factor nine for more than 12 years now. And mm. the data is showing that they are still expressing factor nine over that, over that whole time period. So all of that went together to give us some confidence that if we had the right vector and transgene combination, we could get durable expression of factor nine in patients with the best risk profiling. Now, there's, there's a few specific aspects of the hemogenics, which I think are really cool. Okay. So we got a gift from nature uh, about uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. There were patients in a city in Italy called Padua, and they were getting worked up at the hematologist because they had sky-high factor IX levels, and they were getting blood clots. And hmm. their factor IX levels were anywhere from 700 to 900%. Wow. Almost tenfold higher than the normal concentrations. And when they analyzed those patients, they had a single mutation in their factor IX protein that caused it to be hyperactive or highly active. And so they called this the Padua factor nine. The scientists put two and two together and said, well, you know, the expression we were getting in those previous trials with factor nine, we were getting expression in like the five to 10% range. I mean, it was good enough to be a prophylactic therapy, but mm. can, we get, can we get even higher expression? So the, the thought was that if we combine the Padua variant inside these AV uh, transgenes, we might be able to get eight to tenfold higher factor expression. The clinical protocol here um, was originally developed by a company called Unicure before it was transitioned to CSL bearing. And they already had data with this vector with the wild type, the normal factor nine gene. Those gentlemen were expressing between five to 10% levels. They've been followed now for more than five years, stable expression. And we wanted to know what would happen if we put the Padua gene in. So at our center and then a couple of other uh, places, uh, we dosed three three patients with this modified same vector, but modified with this Padua variant. And those three gentlemen uh, got factor nine levels basically up into the normal range of factor nine expression. Mm.
that really emboldened us that really this is the trick to combine these two elements together. So we then uh, launched into what your uh, listeners may know of a phase three trial. This is like the pivotal trial to show the benefit of this type of therapy. Mm -hmm. I already laid out the, the limitations of factor prophylaxis we've had to date. We wanted to be able to compare what would happen to their degree of bleed control after they moved on from factor IX replacement to post gene therapy with what was called a tranidez at the time, this vector. Mm -hmm. So all the patients in the phase three trial, we, we enrolled 54 patients into the phase three trial. They all had to be on standard of care prophylaxis with factor IX. They could be standard factor IX products, extended half-life factor IX products, and we collected their bleed data, so what, how, how many breakthrough bleeds they had in a six-month to one-year period, and then we also calculated how much factor utilization they had. Then they got a single treatment uh, event with um, Atranidez, which became Hemogenics, and then they were able to stop their prophylaxis. And uh, we followed the patients, and we, we took a time frame between seven months post-treatment to 18 months because that's when everyone had sort of stabilized their expression mm -hmm. from their liver. Okay. And it gave a good window of time to analyze, okay, what's their degree of bleed protection post tranidez? And what we observed is 94% of the patients have been able to stay off prophylaxis because they were expressing so well. The mean factor IX activity um, at six months was 39%. So for your listeners, we consider the non-hemophilia range 40% and above. Mm -hmm. So they're mm -hmm. right up at the cusp of the non-hemophilic range. And then uh, they've, they've been followed out now for 24 months, and they're still expressing at just about 37%, so pretty stable. And then if we look at their bleed experience, the bleed rates on the lead-in phase when they were on factor IX prophylaxis was about what we was we use a calculation called the annualized bleed rate. So mm -hmm. this is sort of like if you like the average number of treated bleeds over the course of a year. So during the lead-in phase, the annualized bleed rate was four, and that declined to 1.9 after they were dosed with a tranidez. Now keep in mind, they're only relying on their, their, uh, their own factor IX production at that point. So it showed that at this level of expression, this was actually superior bleed protection compared to factor IX uh, protein replacement therapy. Hmm. If we look at factor utilization, so mm -hmm. if you're not on prophylaxis anymore, your factor use just you know falls off a cliff. Yeah, And so, there was something like a you know a 95 to 97 percent reduction in factor IX utilization uh, because patients were able to come off prophylaxis. So so those are kind of the hard numbers, but some of the other benefits that I think I've heard from patients is um, some of them came into this study with some pretty challenging joints. You know they still had active synovitis, you know inflamed joints because of repeated bleeding, mm -hmm. and we saw. Uh, improvements in, in their joint uh, function, um, less pain. Uh, we saw them um, taking on new activities that they hadn't been doing previously. And uh, I've caught some of these guys when they've come to clinic for follow-up saying things like, you know, well, when I used to have hemophilia, mm. which is a really important um, aspect for me, there's been a mental health change here mm. for the positive. 
they are now thinking like, I don't think about my hemophilia on a daily basis anymore or on a weekly basis. I'm not infusing. I'm not getting those regular reminders that I have a missing protein anymore. I'm relying on this prior treatment event and uh, I don't have to think about my hemophilia. Um, the spontaneity that they report coming into their lives. Um, if, you're, if you're doing a factor infusion, I mean, you probably know you get this peak right after you infuse and then your levels start to decline pretty rapidly. Uh, people have pause before they do an activity to think, okay, when did I last infuse? Am I going to be protected right now if I go for this, uh, if I go for this, uh, you know, pick up basketball game with my friends or I go for this hike on a Saturday? How well protected am I going to be? Mm -hmm. The spontaneity and freedom that comes into patients' life when they know they've got this steady state expression, it's not changing on a monthly basis or now even on a yearly basis. I think that's a really important aspect of of the transformative nature of this kind of treatment. So those are all the sort of the, the, the gold nuggets related to this treatment. There's a, a couple of aspects that I think your listeners should understand about AAV uh, gene therapy. Okay. And the first one is AAVs are naturally occurring viruses. We, we all encounter them in, in the wild. They don't cause any disease, but we mount antibodies against them potentially. And for almost every platform of therapy that's used AV vectors, they have screened patients out if they had a certain level of antibody that had the potential to neutralize the virus and basically block it from getting directed to the liver. Mm. So that was a real exclusionary aspect of AV gene therapy up until this point. Uniquely to this trial with this product, we had some early data that suggested that. Um, having AAV neutralizing antibodies might not be an impediment to getting a good outcome with this treatment. Hmm. So boldly, that small study we did with the first three patients with the Padua mm -hmm. variant, we enrolled them knowing what their neutralizing antibody titer was, but we didn't uh, exclude them from participating. And they got that really good expression. So that emboldened us for this big phase three trial not to screen patients out based on neutralizing antibodies. I didn't realize that. And what we observed is that um, except for a single patient who had a really, really high titer, probably mm -hmm. at the like 90 or 95th percentile of the normal population, he did not get a good response. He, he didn't respond at all. So, so there does appear that there's probably a threshold there. Hmm but it's not clear where that threshold is. We had all the rest of the patients, about 40, 42% of them had neutralizing antibodies and up to a titer of about one, one to 700. This is the dilution of their plasma that was used to make this calculation. Um, okay. They all seem to have good response and no safety issues related to neutralizing antibodies. So to date, this is the only AV gene therapy program that does not exclude patients based on AV neutralizing antibodies. So I think that's encouraging to me that um, it opens up this platform of therapy to a, a broader population of patients. But the immunity still comes back to bite us one more time. Okay. So remember the analogy of the, the Amazon box, okay? Yes. When you have to recycle the box, you have to break down the, the protein coat of the AV. The least your fun part. Yeah, your, your liver cell has an opportunity to present those protein fragments 
to your immune system. These AV proteins are potentially foreign proteins to your immune system, and they can mount an immune response against the virus vector. And we had observed in some early trials that there was a proportion of patients who looked like they were having some liver inflammation. And that was triggered by, you know, we do all sorts of labs in these clinical trials. And we were measuring liver enzymes, um, which are a, an easy access test that you can do when you're following patients. Mm. Some patients, they had a spike in their liver enzymes some weeks after the AAV was delivered. And uh, if, if we observed some of those patients, they actually had a decline in their factor IX expression, and some of them actually went right down to zero. Well, no, well, that would be devastating after going through this treatment and then not getting a good outcome. Sure. So that early trial I, I mentioned to you back in the you know 2011 through 2014, mm -hmm. they'd known this and they decided to watch this closely in patients post-AV and they gave them a short course of corticosteroids. These are oral immune suppression. Um, prednisone, uh, which is used for a lot of different conditions. Sure. Actually, it looked like the transaminases, these liver enzymes, came back down to normal and they were able to preserve the factor IX expression. So going into this trial, we, we used that same protocol and the patients were followed and there were nine patients in the 54 who showed a spike in their liver enzymes, we gave them the course of steroids and uh, all of them ended up um, salvaging uh, their factor IX expression. Now, they tended to be on the lower end of the overall expression, so it wasn't helpful mm. to have this immune response, but it was, a, it was a minority of the patients who participated and we, have an, we had an appropriate treatment to manage them. So now that this has been approved um, by the regulatory agencies here as well as in the, in the EU, all the clinicians are being trained on how to manage patients, help them navigate this follow-up period. If this is going to happen, it's going to happen in the, within the first three to four months generally. And so we watch the patients closely after dosing. They get regular uh, blood checks, and we're armed and ready to give them a short course of the steroids. The amount of time that patients are on this is somewhere around uh, either 60 to 80 days. So about two and a half months, they start off at a higher dose and then we wean them off slowly over the subsequent weeks. Okay. All the patients came off steroids by the six month uh, uh, window. Um, and since then, we've not observed any other evidence of an immune response. Okay. So one thing we have to be careful with, the, the clinicians all know how to follow this. And when I talk to patients, I make sure they understand, look, you, this is a procedure. It's going to be a one-time event, yes, but we need to keep close eyes on what happens in the post-infusion phase and make sure that we get the best outcome for you possible. That's an important nuance because you hear one and done and it doesn't necessarily bake in that there is a multi-faceted over a period of time procedure that accompanies the one-time infusion event. So I appreciate the nuance there. I'm going to combine two questions in the interest of time. We're on safety. So I want to ask you just broadly, do you have any safety concerns or any long-term unknowns that you want to underscore for listeners who are interested in this as a potential therapy and in something they would talk to their doctor about? Are there any concerns that we should underscore for people? And I also want to go back to that inclusion-exclusion piece. So is anybody with hemophilia B in the United States eligible for hemogenics? Let's start with the second half. 
Um, there's about 6,000 patients with hemophilia B in the U.S. Um, Two-thirds of them have severe to moderate severe hemophilia, which was the target um, for this uh, clinical trial that was approved. We're only treating adults, and that has to do with the fact that the, those episomes I described at the beginning, if your cell divides, like in a, de in a developing liver, in a young child or even up through early school age, when your cells divide, you don't you, you're not going to propagate those episomes. So the transgene won't remain with the daughter cells. Got it. So we don't think this platform of therapy is going to be suitable for younger children. Okay. Could it be done in a, it could be done in a teenager. I, I think some trials will probably explore that um, in the, in the coming years, but right now because it's this an is, efficacy concern more than a safety concern. So it, with teenagers, I, I follow. Yeah, so, so it's primarily an efficacy issue. Um, right now, it's approved for adults. Um, and uh, because we're targeting the liver, we need a healthy liver. And this is an important learning point for patients and also for even the younger guys. Mm. If you're going to use your liver as this new manufacturing facility, you got to take care of it. Mm. Um, we don't want patients to go with untreated hepatitis. Everybody needs to go through their, their hepatitis C treatment, get that eradicated. Um, it's not an exclusion to have a history of hepatitis C, but you can't have gone on to have features of cirrhosis or fibrosis. So, th so that's mm. an important point. We, you also know that we have this rising epidemic, not just in hemophilia, but across the U.S., of fatty liver disease. Yes. We're concerned that um, some degree of... Um, you know, non-alcoholic steatosis, we call it, or, or fatty liver disease could impair the outcomes with liver-directed gene therapy. So this is a motivation to make sure people are taking care of their, their diets, taking care of their weight, getting exercise, um, you know, keeping alcohol, uh, you know, to, to, you know, a minimum so you can preserve this manufacturing facility that you've got uh, potentially in your body. So, so those are some things that your, your patient, you know, people who are listening can pay attention to. And if you're a younger guy, 15, 16, 17, and you want this to be an option for you at some point in the future, well, then, you know, take note of these things and make sure that, you know, we're taking care of ourselves properly. Um, other than that, you know, there are the medical inclusion exclusions, but I, I think there's this practical suitability to go through a hmm. procedure like this. Um, you know, if you're a young guy, you're at college, you're away from home, it's really hard for me to envision how we could do this protocol with you right now. Yes, hmm. you know, you come in for your treatment event, but how can we help you navigate to get all of your labs done with the follow-up appropriately and, and make sure we uh, get the best outcome for you? So, you know, I think we're trying to be innovative and come up with ideas like, can we use you know, nurses that come, you know, to your home and actually draw the labs in your home. There are services that can do that. We can use local labs. So if a, if a young guy's away at school, maybe he can go to a local lab and we can do the communications that way. So, hmm. so those are suitability aspects that we want to work through. But I, I think more importantly, I, I want to understand what uh, patients' goals are, you know, for their life. Um, factor nine prophylaxis yet yeah, it has some limitations, but it's 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 done patients very well 
for a, a lot of their life. And uh, I think we got somebody up on Everest with uh, Factor Nine prophylaxis after all. Yeah. So so we want to be we want to be clear. Like, you know, I mentioned some of the positive outcomes of gene therapy. I want to present that to a patient and understand what their goals are in life, because I don't think the risks are zero. Hmm. We're still in early days in gene therapy. So the longest follow up I have is from animals. Um, I did mention that one trial where uh, gentlemen are out about 10 to 12 years. That's pretty encouraging. Definitely. But nobody's had, nobody's had gene therapy for 40 years, right. yeah. for 50 years. Yeah. Um, so do I have all the information I need to help a patient make a decision? I think I, 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 I give them all that we've talked about today and also partnering that with where their own goals and aspirations are. And then we help them through a shared decision-making process to see, is this the right option for you uh, right now? Um, a lot of pe- people come back to, you know, well, you know, you're delivering this gene to my liver, you know, it, is this gonna change my, you know, liver function? Does it alter my legacy from, from a genetic perspective? Well, we're not, we're not changing your, your own genome your hemophilia doesn't go away genetically. If you right. have a daughter, your daughter, your daughters are still going to be carriers. So that is something we need to make clear to families. I mentioned the integration. We've, we've actually had the opportunity to get some liver biopsy specimens from patients who've gone through this type of platform of therapy. The integration rate into the patient's um, own chromosomes is very, very low. It's like decimal percentage point. But hmm. to put this in perspective, the dosing for this trial is two times 10 to the 13th zeros, okay? okay. Per kilogram. Okay. So average, average guy today is probably in the 80 to 100 kilogram. You know, we're talking almost quadrillions of particles that are being delivered into the bloodstream. That's a big number. Those are being taken up by trillions of hepatocytes in the liver. So even a decimal percentage point of integration is substantial. I see. I go back to two points when I'm talking to patients. Many people have already been exposed to AAV over the course of their life, doesn't cause any disease, and natural AAV elements have already integrated into your own DNA and your liver. That happens naturally. Mm. And we've not identified clear evidence that that is tumor-causing. Uh, in in humans. That's the first thing. The second thing is we are paying attention to from the biopsy specimens on where these integration events have occurred. And we've not seen any evidence of, I guess I would call it a smoking gun, evidence that it's integrating somewhere in either activating genes or inactivating genes uh, that would be associated with tumor genesis or, or, or triggering a malignancy. So I, I think it's an incalculable risk, mm. but I think it's very low and it hasn't been observed in the clinical trials. We have seen malignancies in the clinical trials, but in every case so far, they've gone through an extensive genome analysis of the tumors and the adjacent tissue, and they've not been able to show any evidence that those tumors were triggered or even advanced in any way by going through the gene therapy process. So that remains encouraging to me. So I have to put everything on the table for a patient, make sure they understand the knowns, and they also understand the unknowns, and then we can work together on reaching a decision on whether this is the right therapy for them. I appreciate hearing your perspective shift in a way from researcher, investigator, 
to clinician as you first talked through, you know, the critical information, the things that strike you. But then it was very helpful, I think, to hear you translate that thought process into, okay, now I'm sitting across from a patient. What are the things that I want to talk about in that shared decision-making process to assess, is this a good option for you? I think it's really helpful for listeners both to hear the science and the facts, as well as the process that they may undergo with their own clinician in determining whether or not hemogenics is an option. So I just think it was really helpful to kind of hear that modeled in the way that you just answered. And with that, Amy, I'll lay out so that you can get in there with a question. Yes. Um, Dr. Pipe, thank you for being with us. Um, Always an honor. I guess, and this might be a good question to take us home. If a Factor IX patient is listening, um, where, where do they go for questions? Will any hematologist do? Will any treatment center do? Where do they go? How do they begin their journey? Yeah, so, so now we're sort of getting into what, what I would call implementation science, okay? So, so how do we mm-hmm. deliver this, this exciting uh, new paradigm shift in innovative platform of therapy? How do we actually deliver this to patients? Um, we've been talking about this for, for quite a while, so I, I think we're pretty well prepared. Um, we've been doing all the education to get uh, all the multidisciplinary teams up and ready to uh, be able to talk to patients about this therapy, get them ready. Uh, If you've been to some of the bleeding disorder conferences, uh, HFA, as well as at uh, at NHF, you've probably seen uh, presentations talking about this platform of therapy, helping to get patients ready. Um, There's been many publications on preparedness, um, how to get your center ready to deliver this platform of therapy. And then I've, we've had our own uh, regional hemophilia meetings. Um, we're in the Great Lakes region. We've been talking about this for a couple of years. Um, I've been to some of the other regional uh, meetings where they've been also uh, focused on this. And what I see happening is a, a network of uh, mechanisms of delivery. And it's following a model which some have called a hub and spoke. Mm-hmm. I, I like to think of it as sort of an idea of dosing and coordinating centers and referral and follow-up centers. These are Hmm. likely all going to be hemophilia treatment centers who have the expertise to understand this platform of therapy, talk to patients, etc. But your center may take a different role um, to actually help you get this treatment. And what I mean by that is I'm just thinking about the state of Michigan. Um, there's really only a couple of centers here who've been involved in the clinical trials at any level doing gene therapy. But we are, we've already been working with our colleagues on a referral basis to come to Michigan to have dosing. Um, and I think that the vision going forward is, um, you know, at least out of the gate, a couple of centers in our state may serve as dosing centers um, interacting with our colleagues at the, at the other uh, hemophilia treatment centers, referring us, getting, getting um, them dosed. And then we will work coordinated with the referring center for the follow-up phase, helping them to sort of get up to speed on all of the nuances of managing a patient through this procedure. And then ultimately down the road, they may actually be able to take on the dosing themselves. So I think this, um, if you want to call it hub and spoke or, or, or this model of, of shared care amongst patients, I think, I think it can work well. We've already done it in the clinical trial program. I dosed patients from all over the country here at Michigan, and then they went back to their center for the rest of their follow-up. So I know this, this model can work. Great. And so what that means is you don't have to worry that you're in a geography 
that, oh, I won't, I'll never be able to get access to this. We don't want that to be the case. And I can tell on the map that through every region of the country, there's at least one or two centers that have all, all the expertise needed to deliver gene therapy for that region. And so no matter where your geography is, um, I believe you can get access to this therapy. Um, and your center may be involved on the dosing or your center may be involved in the referring and the follow-up phase. So last thing for me, Dr. Pipe, you seem particularly excited today. And I generally think of you as being extremely knowledgeable, passionate, articulate, willing and generous with your time. But I'm struck. I guess I'm a little struck. You seem particularly excited. And I'm asking myself, did he have a great breakfast? Am I projecting a little bit? Or is there something else? And so I'll leave it to you. Am I projecting? Did you just have a great breakfast? Or is there something else? Uh, no. In fact, I, I'm, I'm irritated because I made myself breakfast and I ran out the door and I left it on the counter. So that's definitely not <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm excited because uh, from my earliest days um, in the laboratory, um, uh, we were already talking about how to leverage these clone genes for factor eight and factor nine and be able to make gene therapy a reality for patients. And 30 years later, to now be, have been involved in a clinical trial program that had such good results, such promise for patients, and to also continue to follow these guys who've gone through this treatment and just see their lives blossom um, after mm -hmm. this treatment. Um, I am excited. I'm excited because I, I think this brings a lot of hope. Um, I didn't tell you, but the name of this clinical trial program was called the Hope B Trial. And uh, I, I, think, I think that's really cool because mm -hmm. I do think it gives our patients hope. Um, yes, it's only for adults right now, um, but it gives me motivation as a pediatrician. I need to preserve my patient's joints. I need to preserve my patient's liver health because this is potentially waiting for them. Mm -hmm. And if they could get a single treatment event and be liberated from the rigors of prophylaxis, hopefully for the rest of their life, um, that is an amazing, transformative therapy, and I'm really excited that I could see this day myself and hopefully already now be able to talk to patients about how this can maybe be a reality for them. So listeners, if you're interested in learning more, there are links in the program notes for more information on hemogenics, more information on AAV gene therapy, and maybe a good place to start if you're just considering what gene therapy might look like for you. So check those out in the program notes. Dr. Stephen Pipe, thank you very much for all that you've done for people like me with hemophilia and most acutely for coming on Bloodstream today with Amy and I. We appreciate your time. And I have a feeling may ask to see you again on Bloodstream in 2023. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully next time we can talk about hemophilia A, because I think we're close. <laughs> yes, that's kind of what I was thinking. So uh, we'll, we'll bring you back when that time comes. So thank you to Dr. Pipe for coming on and chatting with Amy and I about hemogenics and hemophilia B gene therapy. We also discussed there his coming back later, I think probably this year, yes. to talk about hemophilia A gene therapy once, maybe, there's an approved heme gene therapeutic to talk about as well. So thank you again to Dr. Pipe. Always appreciate having you on. Amy Board, we went through it at the top, but remind listeners, what are they next going to hear from Bloodstream and when? You get an extra episode of Bloodstream hey. next week, February 3rd. Y'all, it's going to be great. You're going to get a Let's Talk segment and a phenomenal interview with our beloved Connie Montgomery. 
We love her. It's going to be great. And then we'll be back February 10th as well. We have Nathan Schaefer from the National Hemophilia Foundation going to talk all things Washington Days. And uh, we got good stuff for you this month. We got to ask Nathan, too, about why NHF wasn't participating in that rare disease That's right. group that we talked about a couple episodes That's right. ago. That's right. I did. So we we talked f- about that. Um, you talked about it with Nathan? Yes. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, cool. We already did it, yeah. Oh, my goodness. For this? For this podcast. It, it already happened? It already happened. Wow. All right. Well, never mind anyway. So that already, <laughs> we could probably cut most of that little bit. <laughs> but thank you, Amy Board. So yeah, bonus episode next week. We're back again the week after that. For totes. And with that said, that is all for this episode. As always, remember to subscribe to listen to and share episodes from the Bloodstream Podcast with friends, family, colleagues, people you just met. If you or a loved one in the Bleeding Disorders community is a musician and you'd like to share your songs and story for a new segment on the Bloodstream Podcast, email mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can also use mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for our podcast and or... Our films, we're always casting something. We're legitimately casting stuff right now, so please reach out. You can also connect with Bloodstream Media or me, Amy Board, or, of course, Patrick James Lynch on social media. We're on all the things except for, well, I'm not on TikTok because I'm in my 40s. Well, oh, I want to unpack that, but we're out of time. So I'll just have to say I'm your host, Patrick James Lynch. (laughs) And I'm your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.